You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. On this episode, we will be giving a brief overview of some of the amazing sessions we've attended at the recent American Anthropological Association meetings in Washington, D.C. The conference has been really great, and I'm super excited to talk about it on the show. It's currently Sunday afternoon, and we are recording in a somewhat public space, so you may hear some noise in the background. Joining me for this recording are April Bisa, Sarah Head, Laura Heath-Stout, and Sally Gaston. We haven't had the pleasure of having either Laura or Sally on the show before, so if you could go ahead and just give a really brief introduction about who you are, and then we'll jump right into the awesomeness that was the AAAs. Um, hi, I'm Laura Heath-Stout. I'm a PhD candidate in the archaeology department at Boston University, um, and I'm writing my dissertation on how racism and sexism and heterosexism affect what archaeologists choose to study and how our diversity issues affect our knowledge production. Hi, I'm Sally Gaston. I'm an undergrad at Vassar College. I'm currently a junior and mostly studying archaeology, but also sort of um, medieval studies and earth science. Great. Thanks so much for those introductions. Um, so I'm just going to kind of open the floor up. Did anyone go to any panels that you're super, super stoked about and you just like you have to talk about them? Because I want to make sure that we talk about those panels first. Laura, I see you like looking really excited. So do you want to start? Yes. Well, it seems weird for me to talk about this because April was on this panel. Oh, um, but, <laughs> oh yeah. But the teaching archaeology as social justice, I was so stoked about from the time I started looking through the conference book and um I scheduled everything else around that, and I was like, it was amazing. Um, so it was a flash panel with a whole bunch of people giving five-minute presentations on different aspects of uh, social justice work as archaeology teachers, and I was just—it was one of those moments where you feel like I'm in the room with my people. Like this is the room where my people are, and here I am. And I was so happy and so excited. Yeah, and it was really well attended. I mean, like we all know with conferences, like sometimes there are better attended sessions. Sometimes you go to sessions that have yeah. more people in them. Particularly, you know, like the 8 a.m. the 9 p.m. sessions are well attended, and that room was just packed. Mm-hmm. It was a big Even, room. Too. It was pretty out of the way. Also, it was, a, yeah, it was really hard to find. It was really they hard stuffed to find. Them, they stuffed them over in the Omni for one, which was the secondary hotel, and then it was kind of like an ant hill. Which the Omni is an interesting hotel, just layout wise. But yeah, it, I actually had that one star because I used the app, which I recommend next year. Um, it was nice. It ate my phone battery, but it was a good app. <laughs> um, I had that one star before I even knew April was on it. And then when I showed up, uh, Dr. Larry Zimmerman was the discussant who was not listed anywhere. Um, so that was a super secret surprise for everybody. So that was great to see him again. Um, so one of, I was also at that panel. I think a lot of us were, were at that panel. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a really great um, presentation and I'm trying really, really hard to find the name of the woman who did it, but there were, I think, nine... Tell me what it was, and I'll remember. So there was a woman who was working on a... Um, it was originally called a pauper cemetery, but they've renamed it um, because pauper is kind of a negative word, and she got a bunch of her students involved in mapping where graves were, in finding old um, headstones if they existed. And a lot of the people um, buried in this 
cemetery were people who, you know, didn't have money, their families didn't have money to pay for burials in um, the non-pauper cemetery and getting her students engaged, so getting fieldwork experience, methodological experience with the, the techniques that you're going to use doing surveys, identifying graves, um, you know, finding headstones, was apparently profoundly useful for them. There was one individual in the class who actually had one of her ancestors, uh, not like a far past ancestor, but fairly recent ancestor, was buried there. And there was just apparently this incredible engagement by the students with this project, as well as being really functional, teaching people the skills that they need to have. Well, and I think the other important aspect of that talk especially was uh, the community involvement that they had because of the project. She mentioned several times that people had come up to them to either mention, people from the community had come up to the researchers to tell them that they had ancestors in that cemetery, or they had come up and asked if the archaeologists could help them relocate a uh, ancestor that they knew was in the cemetery, because not, well, I, I'd say the majority of those uh, graves, she said, were not marked. Because it yeah. took decades sometimes to afford a tombstone for a lot of those. But uh, she did say that they were kept well. They were upkept. Um, but, you know, eventually you, you, you meet one good storm and you've lost. If you lose your marker, you don't know where you are anymore. So right. you can see how that could have... It's a good way of public archaeology there as well as tying in with the students. Yeah, and, and the local community does care. I think they said they were raising money to, you know, get some shade trees and maybe some benches. And they were planning... Um, to have some, you know, social events there, and the, the class is going to go forward and do the same thing next fall. Um, and the students who are still at the university, some of the students who did that class graduated, um, but the students who are still there are planning on taking it again. Uh, who so was just, who did that paper? April. April. That was uh, Sarah Rose Paper, who was my co-organizer, um, who uh, is uh, Archaeogal on Twitter. Uh, I'm looking for so the name of her presentation was service learning and social justice insights from from the first semester of the Hidalgo County Pauper Cemetery project and she's at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley yeah that okay before we go any further though that panel if you want like Twitter celebrities as far as archaeology is concerned I feel like April <laughs> yeah. mined Twitter and was like you and you and you because um, Sarah Monroe was on there um, I know I'm going to say her name right wrong but uh, Carlin De La Cova who is uh, Bones Holmes on Twitter as well and she's been on there she's been on Twitter probably as long as Twitter's been active um, Bob Merkel was there. A lot of you know him, if, especially if you follow Archie Fantasies. Um, who else was on there that was like huge on Twitter? Aside from April, of course. Um, <laughs> well, Keisha uh, is on there. And she's an archaeo mapper on, on Twitter. Usma Rizvi is also on Twitter, yeah. which I didn't wasn't following her until then. And yeah. then I was like, I want to quote her on Twitter. And I went and found her. And she has a really cool Twitter feed. Yeah. Too. Well, I actually organized the session on Twitter completely using that Twitter. Uh, and these are just people who like just stood up and said, "I want to, I want to talk about this." So we had a great variety. We had an undergraduate. We had mm -hmm. people she who are really good too. students at various levels. We had people who are professors at various levels. We had people who are you know, Larry's retired now. Like we had such huge diversity. And I think I was talking to Sally when we were walking uh, 
today or yesterday that I think we got a huge amount of diversity for an archaeology panel because we were talking about social justice and people with diverse backgrounds have stories that they want archaeology to talk about and include those identities in archaeology. So if you think that there isn't diversity in archaeology, it's probably because you're talking about the wrong things and things that people you're from in a diverse background realize it. Yeah, right. Well, and I'm actually going to maybe embarrass April a little bit. Um, her five-minute intro was really, really stellar, just talking about um, she had looked at what university programs have social justice or what universities have social justice programs and what disciplines make up the social justice programs and like archaeology isn't super well represented it wasn't in any of the ones that i found i didn't find a single social justice program that includes archaeology right but some of them did include anthropology although we use it often as electives for the social justice part um so april's um talk is all about the fact that archaeology isn't traditionally kind of viewed as being this social justice force, but that there are so many great ways that you can take archaeology and use it for social justice, and you had nine people highlighting different ways in which they can do that. Um, I personally would be super stoked to see more archaeological classes being included in social justice curriculum, because... Awesome. Well, in April's suggestion of retitling, I think that was uh, both the most important takeaway in the discussion, I think. I feel like that, anyway. Uh, but it was also the most controversial, uh, was the whole concept of retitling the names of classes that are being offered so that they reflect, I think you said, put the thesis of your put the thesis of your class in the title. Um, and I think, I honestly, I, I agree with that 100%. I think being a bit more descriptive in the title about what your class is supposed to be about will get more people into it. Wow, no one's ever told me to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that because, so I taught a class last summer in the summer term at BU. Um, it's our Archaeology 100 class. It's not even required for the major, so it's very general education, and it's called Great Discoveries in Archaeology, which just makes me want to gag every time I say it. Um, <laughs> and be, and it has, in the. I used to be a TA for the class, and I watched it being taught as like, and then and Heinrich Schliemann found oh. this really cool thing, and Can maybe he was a little dis- right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was a very um, Greece, Rome, Egypt, Mesopotamia focused, and um, but it, it's supposed to be our kind of global introduction to ancient civilizations kind of class for humanities credit for people for general education classes, and. It ended up being fun to have that title of my class because I couldn't change it. I was just given the summer section of it. And so then we ended up talking in the class about why the title was problematic. Um, And I made... I think probably the most global version of that class that's ever been taught. And I learned so much about Asian archaeology and Sub-Saharan African archaeology and Australian and like Pacific Islands archaeology that I didn't know about because my education has been mostly in the Americas and the Mediterranean. So it ended up being such a cool learning experience for me. So it it ended up being fun. But if I ever get to like have any power, we're getting rid of that name. And uh, I'm following your lead. What title would you give to an intro? archaeology class if you can and you can take a minute to think about it if you want <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I have I sort know. of like if you if, no, get to give yeah. you time to like think on that I there was another interesting panel that I don't know if any of you were at that was sort of a different thing but it was also focusing on 
kind of how education, how like archaeology is portrayed to like students or to, in, in this case, it was to kids. And so somebody had analyzed, um, and I'm totally, I thought I had written down her name, but I've totally forgotten at the moment, um, about uh, archaeology and children's books. Mm-hmm. And so what it, people's oh. initial perceptions of archaeology is. Were you there? No, but oh. it's not, I'm not no, yeah. because that sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and so she had analyzed um, the... In her case, she was looking at um, Indus Valley civilization as like the topic because that was her, I guess, area of research elsewise. Um, and it was sort of looking at like five or six children's books and how they portrayed archaeology as a discipline, how they portrayed like the idea of looking at the past in general and how they were portraying kind of um, – gender like who archaeologists were as people project was this because i remember something going across twitter um teresa ragsek from kenesha state university come on down yeah Yeah. i remember something going across twitter somebody asking for children's books yeah it was it was really interesting and (gasps) sort of the the it was a slightly disappointing consensus in the fact that it seems as if most of the um people portrayed as archaeologists in the the books themselves are uh male and are white and that they're sort of like this but also in the sense that this idea of looking at prehistory was very much like historians think rather than really kind of discussing archaeology in that way in the sense and very much based on this sort of like Oh yes, civilization <laughs> um, model. Very of it as argument well. to authority. Yeah, it, it, she talked about that a lot. Of this, like how it's not teaching children like critical thinking skills to like question the things that they're told by authority. If you're giving this so young, like historians argue or historians say, when it's it is still something that is much more nuanced than that. And if you can introduce that when kids are young, it really builds critical thinking skills. Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel like we really gyp children these days when we're in school. We don't teach critical thinking anymore. And I, I know that there are a lot of teachers who will argue with me, but frankly, we don't teach critical thinking anymore. And so we get, we get kids coming out of high school, going into college, and you're expected to critically think, and none of them know how to. And, you know, I, I feel bad for them, but that's... Uh, Starts early with these books, <laughs> yeah, teaching them like, to not question authority. She was talking in the, in the way she was, she had looked at it. I guess she had also kind of talked with the kids who had re- she had talked with some of the kids who had read them as well too, who were like four, five, six, seven, or like even like ten years old of like kind of how they thought about it too, which was really interesting. But one of the things that was like most striking to me about it was the kind of idea that the little the little cartoons of like archaeologists that were drawn as like the people in it were predominantly white and predominantly male in so a they place. all look like dr jones too a, a little yeah. bit a lot of them were wearing like lots of khaki and like yeah so it was like very much kind of playing into this early 1900s yeah how it's been portrayed in the media professor. forever yeah mm-hmm. which was and, and we all know that like that's not actually true um if you all don't know about or haven't seen the trailblazers website trailblazers is amazing. Um, which is amazing and they primarily highlight um women who've been involved in the field of archaeology for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, But they also make an effort of showing people who are not white Mm -hmm. um, and the work that that they've done, particularly, um, they've done a a couple interesting posts on the fact that they don't actually know these individuals' names, but white male archaeologists who would go dig in the late 1800s, early 1900s would often get locals to do the actual digging the the 
you know, white male archaeologists would stand and supervise and look at all the fun things that they pulled up, but they're not scraping dirt, they're not moving dirt, they're not sorting, they're not sifting. And you have these pictures from excavations from 100 years ago that are just filled with, you know, local men and women for whom we have no names, Mm -hmm. and they were doing the archaeology. Yeah, there's also I saw a poster by uh, Sean Bruna, who I think he, I think he's a cultural anthropologist, um, and um, and he was working with a, actually a biologist whose name I, I forget her name, but she was doing this some of the statistics work, um, and she was looking they were looking at journals from. Night anthropology journals, including some that are specific to subfields. So they included American Journal of Archaeology, for example, going back to 1976, I think. And they looked at the mastheads of the journals that list the staff and they assigned genders just based on first names, which they acknowledged was, you know, imperfect, but uh, at least a starting point. And they showed that in all of these journals over time, many of the executive editor or the um, editors in chief were men and many of the clerical staff were women. And um, if there was a male editor in there's a correlation between having a male editor-in-chief and a male associate editor like statistically significant correlation there so there are men running the journals there are men uh deciding what gets published there are they're mentoring men as associate editors and then um there are all these women doing this clerical work that never that doesn't get much credit. And as a per- I work at the Journal of Field Archaeology as an editorial assistant, so I know this work. Like I am in that category of clerical workers at journals also, um, alongside everything else I'm doing. And um, I do so much work to help non-native English speakers with their articles to make them really clear. I do so much work checking that everything that's cited in the text is in the references. I do so much kind of cleaning and molding work that contributes to the production of archaeological knowledge but I'm not an author on any of these things and so you know that there was al- there were always been women clerical workers, secretaries, wives girlfriends like yeah. doing all this work that is making archaeology research possible and yet not getting credit for it so there's, there was actually a really interesting um, Twitter hashtag that was going on uh, six, nine months ago um, that I'll double check, I think it was um Thanks to my wife, mm-hmm. um, but I'll, I'll double check that hashtag and put it in the in the show notes. Anyways, this this hashtag, um, thanks to my wife, was basically just photos of acknowledgments that were like, thanks to my wife for typing eight versions of this draft and doing all of the copy editing and clerical work. Thanks to my wife for doing the first translation of this text that's ever been done, which, by the way, my dissertation is 90% based on. I'm sorry. Why isn't this your wife's PhD if she did the translation? Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, that X, it's that double X chromosome somehow that makes it like not possible for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's crazy. Um, so if you're interested in more of that, you should definitely check out that hashtag on Twitter that does bring us about the end to about the end of our first um, 20 minutes but when we come back we'll talk some more about panels we went to that we absolutely loved um, and maybe see if Laura has an answer to my question yes, yes. <laughs> this network is supported by our listeners 
You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we have been discussing our uh, thoughts and feelings about this year's AAA panel, which was held in Washington, D.C. Um, to start off the session, I actually really wanted to talk about a panel I attended on the importance of preparing anthropologists for non-academic jobs. Um, And I actually tweeted some quotes from that panel, one of which was, anthropologists need to be better at talking to the public about what we do and why it is important in an understandable way. Um, And I can just tell you that I don't think I've ever seen so many Twitter interactions on anything I have tweeted in my entire life. Um, It seems to be really resonating with people. And I know everyone that was sitting in that session felt very passionately about the fact that anthropology really seems to stigmatize non-academic jobs, um, particularly at a graduate level. There's this idea of my PhD student should be going and getting a job in the academia because if they go work for Boston Consultancy Group or a different NGO or uh, Adidas hired some anthropologists to do a marketing analysis a couple of years ago, that that's somehow dirty or shameful or, um, you know, we should be pure academics. And that, that stigma really, really needs to change both for the, the students in anthropology who don't necessarily want to go be a professor, but also for the success of the, the discipline. Um, I think someone had pulled some numbers together last year. In anthropology, there were 100 tenure-track job openings last year, and there were 600 PhD students um, who graduated with a PhD in anthropology. So, and those those numbers are just not sustainable. We need to tell people that they can get jobs elsewhere and also provide the skills for them to be able to get jobs elsewhere. I, I didn't even realize there were... Uh, anthropology jobs outside of academia honestly I, I am not an anthropologist obviously um, but like with archaeology we have well at least two paths you can go down at least you can go academic or you can go into the, the uh, private industry and go work CRM or that kind of thing um, I saw governmental sort of as well yeah you yeah. do government work too it's I just with anthropology for what I, even in my head it's just like you do academics or you do nothing yeah, and, and that's a problem. And they talked to, there are a lot of NGOs that want people to come work. Um, there's governmental stuff. I mentioned Adidas um, had hired some anthropologists to do, you know, a marketing um, ethnography, essentially, like talk to people, figure out who's buying our What's shoes and where, and who should we be marketing to um, for this. And yes, that's very capitalistic, but it's also a job. Um, there were some statisticians who worked for various different branches of the government, one of whom worked for the, the CDC. Um, and the kind of stats that you can do in anthropology um, when you have data is, is really applicable, but that also means that you have to teach your students statistics. 
Um, and there are a lot of departments that are really, really theory heavy. And it's great if you can discuss Foucault and Butler and Marx and you know whoever else you've read um, for your department. And those do, that does teach you critical thinking skills um, and being able to think for yourself. But those that is also often harder to quantify on a resume. We're saying I've taken this statistics class and I used this particular methodology, which I could apply for your program, is really, really useful. Well, we were talking about this at the tweet of, about how um, we're real, anthropology seems to be a very theory heavy field, but not so much a methodology heavy field. Like they're, seem more comfortable teaching theory and not method. It wasn't it you, Chelsea, was saying that it's been that way for so long that we've jumped a generation now where we don't know how to teach methodology. Yeah, so that was actually based on one of the comments that uh, I actually heard in, in the session that I'm talking about right now, where someone who has been uh, a methodological anthropologist, um, and this was a more established, you know, has been teaching for 30 or 40 years individual um, who's at their university, anthropology and sociology used to be in the same department. And when it split 20 or so years ago, the anthropology department wouldn't take him despite the fact that he's an anthropologist because he wanted to teach multivariate statistics to the students. And they said, we're theory, we're qualitative, we don't need this sort of quantitative thing. And if that's been going on in the discipline for 20, 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you have people who, you know, may be your professors who don't have the methodological training to necessarily provide it to you. Um, and that's not saying that they don't exist. I know the NSF has a great summer program on um, research methodologies. There are some other groups that But not everybody do that. Into those. Right. Um, it, it, as like as an undergrad, like I've sort of noticed this as well in the sense that I felt I had to go and learn statistics, and it was and in the class of like I don't know thirty people. It was mostly like biology majors or people who were pre med, and there was myself and one other person who also took anthro, and I know this because we had our like anthro theory class together, and so we were both trying to like kind of figure out how we're supposed to take the statistical knowledge that all of the example problems we're doing are based on like medical things and like mm -hmm. how we're supposed to be actually be able to apply that to what we want to do with it for archaeology for bioanth for um even like anthropology as well so it's it's a kind of then if you're even if the students are reaching out to try and learn that other ways it's still kind of like lost in translation almost. It, it really can be. And I know I took um, a stats class as part of my PhD program. I'm a bioarch, so um, that was actually required for the, the bioarch track. But it was taught in the sociology department by a sociologist. And he was lovely, and that was fine. But the sample sizes that they were working with were, you know, tens of thousands. They were pulled from census data. And... You know, then he's turning to, to me, and there was another bioarchaeologist in the room, and, and saying, you know, what, what sample are you going to use? Where's your data? And we were like, look, we managed to cobble together 150 data points. This is so great. Uh, because we actually had one cemetery that's been excavated that had 150 skeletons, and the data is available, and it's so great. And, and he was like, like, wow, that's a huge sample group. I know. <laughs> right. And, and then he was like, I don't really know what to tell you, because the stats that I use, you know, the the minimum number 
for a lot of them, I would like it to be in the thousands and you have 150. Yeah. And it might not change the statistical model that you're using, although there are some statistical models for which an N of 100 or an N of 30 is, is not enough, but it can change how you interpret the results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so trying to learn stats from someone who dealt with sample sizes of tens of thousands, I mean, I, I learned the models, um, don't get me wrong, you can run an ANOVA test, it can run a multivariate regression, it's, it's whatever, that you but can't it's different. run a stat on it. It's that people don't understand the difference between, people hear stats and they all think one thing, am I not even showing up? Um, so they don't understand that stats can be applied across different fields and in each individual field, a sample size obviously is going to vary. And that also means that the validity of that sample size is going to be more or less trustworthy. Like in medical, using medical stats, a sample size of 150 wouldn't be anything that I would trust. But in anthropology or archaeology, I would be like, ooh, that's a bunch. So, <laughs> oh, that turned out really well, um, especially with when it comes to skeletal remains. It, I think the layperson doesn't understand that variation across fields. And I think that's part of the problem. I think this is part of the problem in general. Like our fields, anthropology and archaeology, don't communicate well with the outside world. And if we can get more anthropologists and archaeologists to uh, leave academia and go get those jobs, even if it's not like CRM or something that's so obviously connected. Right. Like if people go work in nonprofits or go work teaching at um, like high schools or doing like museum education, things that are connected but not the same. If, if all these people with all this knowledge leave the ivory tower and we don't just say, okay, never come back, like you're a failure, we hate you. Um, th- then those people are bringing all this knowledge that we. I mean, anthropologists and archaeologists I know are so idealistic. We think what we're doing is really valuable. And so it seems like we should be encouraging people to not just stay in an ivory tower and talk to each other. we start off that way, but I feel like we're getting jaded the longer we stay in any individual area. Like, uh, I'm, I'm a graduate student with Adam State University, which has a fantastic online program. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Um, but some of my cohorts have been in the field for, like, 15, 20 years, and they're just now going back to get their master's because you just need, you need it now. Um, but there's definitely a little bit of crustiness there amongst some of us who have been working for a while. And it's not just because we're old. It's just because, you know, you do this for so long and you're, you come up with your, your big stars in the eyes thing. I'm going to go do this thing. And everyone's like, no, you're going to dig a bunch of holes and you're going to fill it back in when you're done <laughs> at the end of the day. And you're like, oh. And so I feel like that's probably happening with anthropology and at the academic level. I don't really know because I'm not in those two fields, but it just seems like a natural progression. And I think once you get to that point, it's the whole, we were having this conversation, weren't we training people? And it's because, well, that's the way I did it. And if it worked for me, why doesn't it work for everybody else? Or like just the bitterness of, I did it, therefore you must kind of thing. Although some of that is going to have to change. Yes. Simply simply based on if anthropology wants to survive. Um, I think anthropology saw its maximum number of BAs uh, or BS students graduate in, I think it was 2013. Um, and between now and then, the number of people who are graduating college with a degree in anthropology has gone down by about 20%. 
Um, so if, if anthropology and archaeology want to survive, they need to find a way to make themselves relevant. And, and it's totally understandable because if you're going to go to college and most people are taking out loans, you want to know that you can get a job after college, which means that we need to prepare people to get jobs after college. And some of it is also, you know, if you are an anthropologist and you get hired somewhere and you do a great job, like make it known that you're an anthropologist because a lot of people look at anthropology and they're like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that teaches you. But if you've worked with an anthropologist and you know how awesome they are, you might be more inclined to hire another anthropologist. Um, and from a very practical perspective, in terms of working with NGOs and things, and there are NGOs who would like to partner with universities to give them money to have research assistants to come do data analysis because they're on the ground and they have all of this data and they don't necessarily do the kind of academic analysis that you would see and they'd like that to happen. And because they're NGOs and they work on, you know, hot topic issues that people like, it also means that they get a lot of money, right? <laughs> and we don't have a lot of money. So why would you turn your back on a group that wants to give you money so that some of your undergrads or grad students can come get real world experience, can you know learn about potential future employment paths, can uh, afford to live while they're in college, maybe take out fewer loans. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Do you think maybe the colleges don't know what anthropology, do you think maybe the colleges don't know what anthropology is? Well, as a professor, I can tell you that a lot of my colleagues in other departments have no idea what we do, especially with the proliferation of ethnic studies departments. Like at Vassar, we have a Hispanic studies, we have an Asian studies, we have an American studies department. So a lot of people go to those departments if they want to learn about local cultures and local issues in different places of the world. And lots of people just want to label anthropology as colonial and therefore bad and staying away from it. But I think we as professors, that's part of my whole let's retitle classes. Everybody at my college would know better what I'm teaching if I would stop calling things archaeology of something. Right. right? So it's something about it's just still archaeology. Um, but we need to, I think, to change the conversation a little bit um, teach people that you don't have to get an anthropology degree and get an anthropology job, but that you live anthropology, that you learn project management skills, you learn to have difficult conversations and how to be ethical with the people that are at your table. You learn that people have different backgrounds and different experiences and there isn't one right version of anything. Like you could go into any sort of public policy, any sort of politician stuff. You could go into just human resources and be living your anthropology and not say, well, I'm a failure because the title of my job is an anthropology. As long as you develop these skills and become a human being that respects all other human beings and sees that people act the way they are because of the things that have happened to them and their peoples in the past, you're a successful anthropologist and it doesn't have to be that you're doing anthropology. I think anthropology, I mean, to build on what she's saying, uh, anthropology teaches a lot of skills and maybe that's uh, just life skills in general, like you're saying project management and the ability to talk to people who are different than you and not feel like a total idiot, or at least hide the fact that you feel that way. Um, the ability to listen, because ethnographic message yes. teaches the ability to, to listen and to actually hear what people are saying. And change your opinion based on what you've just heard, and that not right politely there. pausing. Right, that right there. So maybe what we need to do as a field is 
mean, obviously not everybody who's going through classes right now is going to graduate and become a professional anthropologist, but they can um, become a project manager for a business. They can become a company researcher. They can become outreach for or just PR. You could be that person in PR that people actually like to talk to. You could be a great person in HR because you hear what the employees yeah. are actually saying and what they need. You, you know, could go into law and diversity be a initiatives. That, yeah. Those should be anthropologists that are leading diversity initiatives. You know, politicians. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots, lots, <laughs> lots of things that we don't necessarily teach the skills of anthropology to make people better anthropologists in a statistical analysis for small data sets. But every anthropology course and every anthropology experience teaches you to be, I think, a better human being. Yeah. And therefore, the value of that is the value, you know, any tuition. As long as you can still eat and, you know, have a good life is worth becoming a better human being. I've always said an intro to anthropology course should be required for all degrees. It's because it makes you a person and not just like you, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you're not not just like selfish me. You're like, oh, wait, there's other people in the world. But but when you take anthropology classes, um, and I don't know that I necessarily realized this when I was taking my first anthropology classes as, you know, an undergrad student because my self-ethnography, shall we say, could have potentially used some work. Um, But as I've been TAing anthropology classes, watching students come in and grapple with questions that maybe they'd never thought of, or even better, grapple with questions that they thought they knew the answers to, Mm -hmm. is amazing. And you see people's, the way they think, the way they relate to one another change. And it doesn't matter what you do with the rest of your life. That's an important skill. Learning to change your mind is a lost art form, apparently. Um, No, I'm serious. I'm dead serious about that. Like, there's even studies that I've seen come across, well, the internet, which is never wrong, uh, (laughs) about how once you have something in your head, the average person, once they have something in their head, there's literally nothing you can do to change their mind. And that causes some issues, obviously, down the road. But... I think, like April was saying, learning to change your mind, and you you built on that as well, Chelsea, the whole concept of here's a really hard thing that you thought you knew the answer to. Well, guess what? You know, and learning to, learning that you can change your mind and it doesn't make you a wrong or bad person and that you can then take that forward and apply it to other things, that right there is a life skill that just is needs to be taught. And ethnography reading tells us to go to the source. Exactly. Don't say you know what other people would say or think. Sally and I were both in an American Indian session that was, uh, does anthropology matter to American Indians? And there was a 75-year-old American Indian who works for the Smithsonian, who she said, and she was serious, she said, I think anthropology has done a lot for Native Americans, American Indians, and I am going to, when I die, have my body ceremonially you know, um, disarticulated and put into the Smithsonian's collection and that people will do research on me and they will learn a lot because they will have a modern native woman's skeleton that they have all of the data for as far as my medical history, my life history, the, my tribal affiliation and all of that stuff. And we were talking about how that's just proof that you could never say no person of X group would ever want right. 
why. Yeah. So we're, we're teaching you in anthropology, not only to critically think and so forth, but that there is a place that you could go find that information. And it's by going to the source, going to those people, spending time with them, not asking one person one question and then, oh, now I know what everybody of this identity um, has to say. So I would say that anthropology can never go extinct as, as long as people want to be better, but we have to make that the predominant message of our field and then people will be coming to us even if it's just for one class or one talk or to read one book right because most people want to be better right sally a second ago you looked like you had something you wanted to say yeah no it's it's so kind of like one of the things i think is easiest to forget and put that that like anthropology really makes you have to remember is that like other people aren't like you can't think of cultures as monolithic which is I think something that in archaeology we have had to struggle to subvert uh, often, but in and like how Fourfields has helped that in a lot of ways, be able to say like no things aren't monolithic in general, and also that um, and that going and reading ethnography like that the panel it's really made you think about the fact that people have incredibly diverse different opinions about their own practices and their own like ideas that is not something that you can say this group believes this that doesn't that doesn't work but reading ethnography doing our anthropology makes you realize that fact and makes you like question kind of how you interact with the people who you interact with and it's like that's so helpful like if you're going to do hr like that's what you need really is to think about the like multiple different facets of people's uh like group identities and individual identities. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a, a great note to end on because we're about at the end of our second segment. Um, but that people are multifaceted and they, <laughs> you should pay attention to all of their various different facets and anthropology teaches you that. Um, so thank you very much, Sally, for that um, great insight. And we'll be back. The Archaeotech Podcast, hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims, is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. Let's get back to the show. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology panel from the Triple A's. Um, so far on today's episode, we've talked about some excellent panels on um, teaching archaeology as social justice, archaeology, or, uh, kids' impressions of archaeology, why we need to make anthropology more accessible to a broader public, um, and kind of along those lines, Sally, you went to a panel on community anthropology or community archaeology. Do you want to? Yeah, it was a it was a panel on community archaeology, and it was sort of out of the way, so there weren't like an enormous number of people there. But it was really interesting in the sense that all of the presenters were um, kind of people who were very much up, up and coming in the field, in the sense that it was a lot of grad students and um, like PhD candidates and a, a few people who were just like out of either their master's or grad school. And so they, it was very much a really interesting perspective into sort of like where the theory in, um, in archaeology as a discipline is going to kind of go in the next like five or 10 years. Because um, some of them proposed some really interesting ideas of 
where kind of community archaeology is going at this point. And so one of the one of the concepts that really interested me was this somebody proposed the concept of sustainable archaeology, which was sort of based in um, black feminist archaeology and indigenous archaeology and community archaeology and also sustainable tourism. And so this idea of how you kind of balance the the needs of the communities that you're working with, with um, also the ecological problems that sometimes arise. So in in that case, um, the presenter had done a lot of work in the Caribbean and like how how do you work with um, communities that are affected by like most recently the hurricanes that have been so destructive Um, and so like how do you build archaeology as a discipline that's not necessarily destructive as well that really brings in the community and brings in their needs and also facilitates kind of like the growth of those like archaeological resources in a lot of ways which I thought was like a really interesting um, perspective there was also somebody who proposed they called it triple time and triple methodologies which I was bringing sort of the idea of the past the present and the future into like how you study kind of archaeology and then also like bring together archaeology ethnography and historical preservation to be able to look at um kind of like historical preservation and the way that uh you can cultural resources can be like managed and uh worked into community like spaces and community dialogues and policy yeah one of the things yeah yeah, one of the things in that session also that i want to bring up is uh claire novotny and maya diedrich dedrick i'm not sure how to pronounce her last name Mm -hmm. but um they're in their paper they talked about um they both work uh in the Maya area, one in Yucatan, Mexico, and one in Belize, and they both work in communities that have like local government committees are on heritage um, and they presented these kind of two case studies of their two different projects um, and how committees work and one uh, they talked about how working through the local government and having a committee of like citizens like modern people in your community mm-hmm. um overseeing your work makes it so that the community the descendant community can dissent against what archaeologists do yeah um and so they gave an example i forget what it was but it was something that the committee decided that they the archaeologists would not have done it that way. It was not something that the archaeologists thought was harmful, but it was just like not the way they wanted to go about it. And the mm-hmm. committee was like, nope, this is what you're going to do. And they went with it, and they were kind of like, man, this is not what we wanted. And then they went, wait a minute, this means that we're doing it right because <laughs> we, have Im- we have created a real collaboration because in a real collaboration, um, both groups of people have a say and the fact that this committee is empowered to tell us like nope this is what the community needs means that and that we are irritated by what they said but we're doing it the way they want means that we're actually doing it right and I was like yeah (laughs) I just wanted to like stand up and applaud it was really cool yeah Getting those kind of stories out is so important to decolonizing archaeology to make... That's been a buzzword. Yeah, it's it's definitely picked up on that this this time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the political climate that we're in. Right, exactly. Um, But that if we want to do a better job of making anthropology relevant, kind of going back to the the conversation we had in the the last section, that 
getting these stories out about, hey, we did this really cool thing, and we're not just going to come in and do some archaeology and go away, and you might get a field report or a dissertation, yeah, but it's not going to go any further than that. Um, you know, that's that's like not good archaeological well, practice. And, yeah. And also the habit of us going in and being like, we're going to interpret this for you. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. You'll get your report with our interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not necessarily how the, like you're saying, not necessarily what the community needs mm-hmm. or wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, those are things, it, it's whatever your opinion is of that, that's what you have to take into consideration. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. about us. So I went to a, I think, very important uh, presentation that was in the uh, indigenous uh, archaeology, and it was actually in anthropology and indigenous sovereignty. Um, mm-hmm. Almost everything I went to was about indigenous uh, issues. And it was by uh, Kristen Barnett from Bates College. And she uh, was talking about a native community and she did an anonymous survey at during the excavation and at the end of the excavation of this community of 400 Native Americans. And she found that 90% of them were aware of the excavations that were taking place, but 0% had read the book that the archeologists provided to the community about the project that they were doing. And that 30% thought that the ancestors were not being respected during the excavation. And she did another survey at the end of the excavation and they were very upset because when the archaeologists finished the excavation, they left the site in such a state where there were big tarps still out there. They didn't completely fill in their excavation oh, units. Wow. So they, the site was scarred. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's um, so, archaeology. Yeah, that was so I think both the idea that when we give people a book to read and say, here, go read no, this and no, understand no. what we're doing... A lot of public archaeology, like, yes, we need to disseminate materials, but we need to make sure we disseminate materials if people are asking for them, what they want, the format they want, the length they want, the type of language, and that we need to be proactive in understanding, well, what issues are you possibly having? Okay, we could do a better job at what we're doing right now. Let's go make sure that that site is in a state Just that they would think it was respectful. with those people. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not going to kill you. Well, lots, <laughs> lots of times when you try to talk to community members, they won't tell you what they're concerned about because that confrontation. Right. right? right. That, and that's part of like being anthropologists. We're okay with that sort of disagreement. But there's a lot of people out there who just don't want to tell you things to your face because they're so upset that they would rather complain and in other terms. Sure, anonymous survey is a great idea, but I think one of the things that could have alleviated a lot of those problems is all that information they're trying to throw a book at you and be like, here, read this, you know, yeah. in your spare time. Wouldn't it kill you to have a 30-minute, 45-minute town hall meeting with these people? Even and if I don't know doing, that she didn't do that. Right, she right, might right. have done that in and maybe addition. She, yeah, mm-hmm. right. But, I mean, even if all you're doing is standing up there with a PowerPoint slide, at least people are leaving slightly more informed than when they showed up. Yeah. And then you can give them the book. I mean, and the whole the archaeological project, I believe the beginning of it, she was just involved in, and then it became more of her project later on. So we definitely, that's why I want to make sure that I give you the, the name yeah. of who this person is so that you could actually go find more than what I'm comprehending <laughs> and remembering from a 15-minute no. presentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's part of why the committees were also useful because – um, it was like the mayors of these towns or the local governments that were 
forming these committees of just people in the towns who are interested and the archaeologists would be I think maybe they said the archaeologists were there at some of the meetings but not all of them and they, those people they sort could of helped organize them initially but yeah right and like, so the people in the committees sometimes were making decisions when the two archaeologists who are both I, I think from the US would be like back in the US and the commu- committee in Belize would be talking about stuff and making decisions and yeah. then they could present it as a like the committee made this decision and yeah. I think that helps get over some of that like I don't yeah. want to have the confrontation I'm just like some person and this is this like educated white person from the north like educated gringa coming down and telling <laughs> me what to do whereas if with the committee they could like build power in the committee and then say that we are representing the community and we're yeah. saying this and, they're also, and it's easier to say. They're also members of the community themselves and they can go and it's it's one thing to take an anonymous survey from somebody who you don't know right. but it's right. another thing when you're talking to like your neighbor or like right. somebody you go to church with or somebody you like, I don't know, have interacted with in the supermarket generally. Mm-hmm. Like That's much more interactions that you have on a daily basis. It um, is. And there's also... Um, the Public Anthropology Conference, which was a couple weeks ago at American University, Michael Blakely was the, the keynote and gave a really interesting, um, informative keynote. But one of the things that he talked about was issues not just with academic archaeology, um, where you have you know community group and archaeologists, mm-hmm. but where you also have a developer or a county council or government that's not yeah. of the community you know, state government that you're trying to to work with and that the only path forward is a path that makes the community feel like they're being respected and like their wishes are being heeded that allows the archaeologists to do, you know, good scientific archaeology that is ethical, that is moral, that makes them comfortable, that you can also get um, this other government or you know if you've got a developer on board with paying for or doing this thing and that that can be really difficult and adds like another mm-hmm. element of complication and if you have stakeholders solid yeah. relationships with the community and they know they can come to you with issues that they're having or with um, that you will listen to and respect what they have to say that also allows you to be a united front if you are trying to get the stakeholders to to agree to something that maybe they don't want to because it costs more money and why would they want to spend more money? Right. Um, yeah. You know, so that that's another important thing to consider. It, I think this falls into the conversation we're having. It just shifts away from indigenous populations a little bit. Um, yes, but it's your paper that you presented. Um, the discussion we were having the night before you presented your paper, Chelsea, about uh, the anthropology of disabilities. Yes. And you made some very valid points when we were having that discussion. And I, how did your paper go? I, I assume oh. it went beautifully. It, it was good. It was um, an 8 a.m. panel the day after all of the receptions. So, And they put us in a massive, massive ballroom. So we had 30 or 40 people there, which in a regular room would have actually been great. But in a ballroom that has 200 shares, it didn't actually count them all. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting interesting session. It was on um, what does it mean to be human in the Anthropocene? And we had people talking about, um, you know, cyborg-human interaction, cyborg sexuality, zombies. I talked about disability. Someone else talked about the 
archaeology and anthropology of non-human animals. Um, there are a couple of theory papers. I'm sorry, I missed this. Yeah, yeah I know. I almost went. Um, I went to something else. Should have gone. Should have yeah. gone. Um, there, there was a paper on um, kind of human origins um, issues as well. So, so it went really well, but the you had some observations though on on anthropologists studying people with disabilities and yeah i mean my my basic thoughts of anthropologists or archaeologists i should say um, who study disabilities is that and and this is certainly not you know nobody's going to take this as a personal defect right Um, and, and there are some great papers out there but there are a lot of generalizations there are a lot of everyone with a disability is disabled and that's it that there are no other aspects or other facets of their personality um Identity isn't engaged with critically. How does being biologically male versus biologically female, upper class, lower class, being, you know, uh, a laborer versus a merchant, like how do all of these things impact perceptions of disability? And also, there are different types of disability. Disability isn't a universal experience. Um, you can have people who can't see or can't hear. Um, who have you know some sort of intellectual impairment. You have individuals with Down syndrome. And that those experiences are not all the same, um, and that we just need to be really careful of like not othering people, um, looking at them as other. That these are other humans; they're not just others. Right. Um, one of the kind of key tenets of disability rights and disability justice movements has been "nothing about us without us." That's a big slogan of like the Autistic Self Advocacy Network, for example. Um, and I think that. Um, that that ties nicely together the archaeology of disability issues that you're talking about and this community archaeology mm-hmm. um, and collaborative archaeology uh, things that we've been talking about that it when non-disabled people uh, start doing advocacy or research about disabled people that is not collaborative it they mess it up. They do all these like problematic things that you're talking about, um, othering disabled people. And I think that, I, I mean, I don't want to appropriate nothing about us without us and apply it to everything, but I, I do think that uh, we shouldn't like men shouldn't be writing about women without consulting women about what they're saying. And like white American archaeologists shouldn't be writing about Native American people without consulting Native people. And like, not that you like people get to write about people who are different from themselves but you have to do it with collaboration and respect i think yeah i almost feel like that's kind of a no-brainer but it really it seems to not it was also that was also the topic of a surprising number of the talks today like at this conference too of like we need to be doing this and everyone's like yes well yeah i mean we really need to okay that was probably like my (laughs) if we're doing takeaways which i know Chelsea gave us, like, the high sign a few minutes ago, and I ignored her. Um, but I, I think that's my takeaway here. I, I'm surprised at how much self-policing and, self, and um, common sense advocacy <laughs> was here at this, at this conference, just in general, the whole, like, we should be talking to the people we study. And I'm just like, well, yeah, of course we should. But apparently that's something that needs to be said. And this whole concept of anthropology as social justice, I mean... It, it's an interesting crossover that I honestly didn't think about until I got here, but really it kind of is that way, and it, we should be teaching it and treating it more that way. So I, I feel like 
how self-aware the field is at this conference, especially the whole concept of decolonizing the, the thing. And, and there were a couple other terms that were being tossed around that I am not familiar with and now have to go familiarize myself with. But it just seems like this conference, compared to the other ones that I have gone to, was a lot more, hey, everybody, let's do something to fix this. You know, we, we know the problems are here. Let's do this. And we can all do it together. And I, and I really kind of appreciated that kind of hopeful upbeat to this. Am I rambling? No, that's um, not rambling at all. It's really good points. Um, we do have about five minutes left. I know, Laura, you would really wanted to talk oh, about yeah. uh, how you went to this morning. So I'm, yeah. I'm sorry we're short on time. No, it's okay. I'll try to do it quickly. So there was this panel as a roundtable. It was called Sexual Violence and Anthropology. Um, it was on at 8 a.m. on Sunday because that's what conference organizers <laughs> do to the panel on sexual violence and anthropology. Um, and it was a panel of like eight or ten women who are they're all cultural anthropologists, although they like acknowledged that they were talking about kind of one piece of anthropology and they were self-aware about that. And they're doing all of them are just like doing really interesting advocacy and and activists and also research work on um sexual violence in anthropology and the ways that um anthropologists like the ways that we talk about that most people talk about ethics and anthropology including like institutional review boards think about protecting the research subjects, which is really important, and no one's against protecting the research subjects, but it puts women anthropologists who may be uh, sexually assaulted by research subjects in a really awkward position because if they report their sexual assault, then they are putting their research subject in danger. Hmm. Also, they're reporting their rapist. So it like uh, it's it's this like really messy situation, um, and uh, there was this older woman who was um, talking about, like many of them were kind of young women, and she was talking about uh, when she mentors students, she has these young women students who are wanting to do ethnographies um, in this in kind of dangerous situations, and she says like we ha well. <laughs> Like, that's dangerous. Like, it's dangerous to go into that community. If you study that, like, if you're studying a, like, criminal organization, that could be dangerous. If you're studying a very male-dominated organization, that could be dangerous. And no one else in her department is thinking about this. And so it's just really, um, it was really interesting. And then um, in terms of, like, thinking through what, how all of our different ways of doing research position us and the, just the complexities around these issues. Um, and also it was really interesting to see that, like I said, it was on Sunday at 8 a.m. Um, as I tweeted, most of the people in the, women, in the room appeared to be women. Um, I was unimpressed uh, that <laughs> so few men showed up. And then one of the men who showed up kept uh, like trying to like talk over like he asked a question but by asking a question I mean he talked for five minutes and then someone tried to respond to him and he just talked over her and I was like this do's and don'ts do show up to the panel on sexual violence do listen do not talk over like what 
what are you doing? And so it was both really hopeful because all these people are speaking out and talking about how to take this hashtag me too moment that we're in and extend it and not let the backlash get us down and all of this. But also I was seeing some of the patterns recreating themselves in that room. And so I have these really like mixed feelings about it, but mostly I'm like, yay, we're having these conversations and they're really important. But it is also um, an issue about we as anthropologists and archaeologists talk to people who already know and, and already care. And it's about being able to communicate beyond the choir, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. um, the people who show up to those panels are interested in those those issues. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And I'm super happy these conversations are happening because Oh, you know, they, they haven't always, and it's actually fairly recently that, you know, we've seen a large uptick, and, and I am so stoked those conversations are happening. But we also need to figure out how to get people who might not already care to care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and you're completely right, and we need to figure... My thing is, is, like, we can tone things down to make the conversation more comfortable for those who are uncomfortable about it, but at the same time, what are we sacrificing it if we do that? I mean, I guess on, on, on your point, that's sort of been the kind of theme of this conference in general, was <laughs> yeah. like the idea of why does archaeology matter, and this, this idea of how do we make archaeology matter not just like as a discipline for the discipline, but how do we make it matter for like actually applying it to move pat- those conversations past like the doors of a conference center or the walls of a university. Definitely. Um, God, I wish we had more time to discuss this, but I know that we have a, an hour limit on our podcast. So I'm going to ask if anyone has um, any final thoughts that they just they really want to get out on the air. Um, now, now is your opportunity. Um, I feel like Sally, tell us. What you thought? <laughs> what's, um, what's your parting wisdom here? Um, Wait, there are. And I'm It's kind of an overwhelming experience, I will admit. There are six thousand ish people. I somehow did not expect that there were that many anthropologists in the world. Somehow, well, not, they're not all here either. Yeah, no, I no, I, I that like, hit me at some point, and I don't really know why it hadn't before. Um, and but I think it's like an incredibly interesting experience especially coming as an undergrad where I I wasn't presenting anything I wasn't like doing a poster session or something and so I really just got to like kind of throw myself in and just go to things and like try and randomly talk to people and stuff like that that was really an interesting thing to sort of see where where this field is and where it's going and like what I really think of it in a lot of ways which was it was just a super interesting experience and a very valuable one going forward. Laura, what's your final thought? Well, I have to answer the question <laughs> of what I would rename Great Discoveries in Archaeology. And we were talking about this during the commercial break, uh, but uh, we, I was saying like we need the word global or world in there somewhere, and Chelsea suggested something like archaeological perspectives on world issues, and I really liked that, because that's what I'm doing with my students. I think of it as a kind of bait and switch. I lure them in with the pyramids, too. and then we talk about racism. Um, it's really fun. Uh, and so, aliens in there too. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we're no, the, main... the aliens are like yeah. a total thing about racism. Like, yeah, it's all yeah. Racism right there. Yeah, yeah. We like lure them in with like, did the aliens build the pyramids? And I'm like, no. And that's a racist question. Let's talk about why. Exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah. So something like that, and uh, and having it stay. Um, nice and like open about global issues would allow me to talk about whichever issues are like at the top of the headlines um, at that time or are most affecting my students. So it keeps it vague enough that I can be a little flexible, but also makes it it's so much better than great discoveries in archaeology, which is just like boring and misleading. Misleading and well, I give you an A plus on your homework assignment. <laughs> Thank Since you. We have to drive back to New York as soon as we're done with this and tomorrow's my last teaching day of the semester. I am in grading mode. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. <laughs> you remind me of finals this week. <laughs> <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> um, April or Sarah, do you have any I, as I said, went to mostly indigenous and native issues things. I went to films. I went to uh, cultural anthropology. I went to archaeology. And I would like to say that I think there's a lot of progress in the anthropology and archaeology of indigenous issues and connecting past peoples to present peoples and talking about the future. But I think it's because we had a large turnout of indigenous anthropologists. Mm -hmm. And I think three different panels I went to were all indigenous people talking about those issues. So So I think hopefully I'd like in the future there would be more integration so that the conversation will be going back and forth. Um, But as we talked about a little bit, there aren't agreement from one indigenous anthropologist to the next anyway, so we still have that. But for those who are, are down on that, you know, it takes a few years for things to get into publications but I think conferences are great places Mm -hmm. to see change as it's happening Mm -hmm. I I threw my two cents in earlier Um, I'm just (laughs) glad that we have we have some new voices on the podcast and have April back. Chelsea's doing a fantastic job. Chelsea sold this podcast to so many people to this this weekend. I walked around with her so much and she was just like, I do the Women in Archaeology podcast. And I'm like, that's right, you do. And even was interviewed as an authority on podcasting. So oh, congratulations, Chelsea. Uh, no, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> so what are your final uh, thoughts? Yeah, I will say my, my kind of final thoughts for this conference as well as the podcast at that we've just recorded that there just there were so many topics that were covered they were so amazing i'm absolutely thrilled that you all could come and participate in this and i'm really grateful um, we love having everyone's perspectives i'm sorry that we didn't have you know 20 hours of recording time to talk about all the amazing things that, that we saw here the conversations that have happened in panels at networking happy hours sitting on the metro trying to get home um, I just was amazing. the tweet up um, the conversations on Twitter. If you want to know what's been going on, the, the hashtag for this meeting was amanth17, and there have been some really incredible um, Twitter conversations that have been happening. The Twitter so, in general was pretty good. Yeah, people really using media this year. De- definitely, um, and I would just love to see these conversations continue on the air with the public at departments, um, in field schools, you know, I think that I'm seeing a lot of of positive changes that are happening and I really hope they continue um, 
for the future. So on that note, thank you again so much for, for being here. And, and thank you for yeah. organizing. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, and hopefully we will see you all again on the podcast soon. Sarah, April, I'm sure Sally and Laura, please, please, please. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> all right. All right. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Please like, share, rate, and subscribe to the show wherever you found it. If you have questions, leave them in the show notes page at www.archpodnet.com slash WIA or email them to womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. The music is Retro Future by Kevin McLeod and is royalty-free music. To support the network and become a member, go to www.archpodnet.com slash members. This show is produced at the Reno Collective in Reno, Nevada. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.